0: This morning, the sermon will be on Job and especially the first testing of Job. And so, in connection with that, we'll read the whole first chapter. first and second second chapter of Job set the context of the rest of the book, and so they're very important also to show us what actually is going on, why this also happens to Job. And so we'll read the first chapter, and we'll particularly look at Satan's word, the challenge that he has to the Lord, and how the Lord praises Job as a believer and as one who does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And so we'll read Job 1, starting at verse 1, where it is written, There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man? Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in, the, in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them, and took them, and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The book of Job is known as a book that focuses on the suffering of the righteous man. And one of the psalms that does this as well is Psalm 73. And so we'll sing Sances 1. As mentioned, the focus of the sermon will be on the verses 6 to 22, on the first testing of Job. And I won't read it with you again, but I will refer to it again throughout the sermon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Job is fascinating and therefore well known and most likely familiar. It stands out among the books of the Old Testament. Where else do you find such a long dialogue between friends? Or which book reveals God's sovereign power and his knowledge over all of creation in more detail and in more beautiful language than the final chapters of Job? And which book discusses such a heavy topic as the suffering of the righteous with such depth and detail? And as we read the book of Job, we'll probably have our questions, and we're struck by the limitations of our understanding. Why is this happening? Why does Job suffer? And why does he suffer so severely? What is Job supposed to do in his suffering? How is he supposed to react to this? How are we, perhaps, to deal with suffering in our lives? Could we react as Job did? And many other questions like this might come to our minds as we read the first chapter of Job or as we read the whole book of Job. Now this morning we'll focus on the question that comes up in the first chapter. And that's the question, why does Job fear the Lord? Now in our passage, this question is raised by Satan. And he raises as a, que- as a challenge to the Lord. And the underlying sentiment of Satan's challenge is that, well, God is not enough. Satan argues that people like Job and perhaps like us, well, we fear and we worship the Lord, not so much because who he is, but because of the blessings he gives us. And it's perhaps easy to understand why Satan would make such a challenge. Most of us make choices based on, our, on the disadvantages or advantages they have for us. You probably did that this week. You wondered, if I do this, will I gain from it? If I don't do my homework, will it really affect my grade? If I work overtime, will I actually have a larger paycheck? Perhaps even if I live a righteous life, will I be better off in the end or in this life? Will there be a larger paycheck for me when I, even though I give up working on Sunday to worship the Lord, Or will I do well in my studies, even though I don't study on Sunday? And then the question is, if this is not the case, if there is no larger paycheck, and if it doesn't go well, would you still worship the Lord? Would you still worship him, even if there doesn't seem to be a blessing at all? And as we look at our text this morning, we'll come across these questions, and we'll see also what the Lord has to teach us through the suffering of, the ser- of his servant Job. And our text this morning is summarized as, through the testing of his servant Job, God reveals that he is feared for who he is, and not for his blessings. And first we see that Job's reason for fearing God is questioned, and second, that Job's reason for fearing God is not taken away. And so first, Job's reason for fearing God is questioned. Now, as mentioned, the book of Job raises a number of interesting questions. And a lot of questions about human suffering and about God's justice. But it also raises some more basic questions that we perhaps have and that we can't fully answer. An example would be, who is Job? And where does he come from? Or where did, when did he live? And perhaps we would like to know more than what the first six or five verses mention. But all that we have is that Job is a man who lived in us. But he was a man of the east, so most likely it would be east of Israel. And could very well be that it was Edom, one of the countries right east, southeast of Israel. And if we want to guess when Job would have lived, we perhaps look at the first verses and we note that his riches are described in his herds and the amount of slaves that he has. And this sounds like the time of Abraham and the time of the patriarchs. And if we look at Job's life, we see that he grew old. Again, like Abraham. And so if we have to carefully guess, it would be somewhere around Abraham or the time of the patriarchs. Well, that's not so much the focus of the passage. It stresses that Job is a believer who worshipped God, who sacrificed to God for his family. And the Holy Spirit only gives us limited information about who Job actually is. Because he wants to move on to what happens in heaven instead. And so at the beginning of our text in verse 6, we are given a description of a gathering in heaven. And all the angels, or the sons of God, gather before the Lord. And with them comes Satan, or as your footnote might mention, accuser, since Satan means accuser. Now perhaps you wonder, why does Satan appear before the throne of God? Why does his enemy, the Lord's enemy, appear in the presence of the Lord? would the Lord really allow Satan to come into his heavenly court? Well, from other parts of Scripture, and primarily Revelation 12, verse 10, we learn that there was indeed a time when apparently Satan came before the throne of God to accuse the saints. In Revelation 12, verse 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And so Satan, the accuser, accused the believers before the Lord and before his throne. But ever since the victory of Christ, he's no longer able to do so anymore. He has been thrown out of heaven, and he is no longer welcome there. And yet at the time of Job, and in the time of our text, he's still able to come before the Lord. And so all the angels gather before the Lord, and God asks Satan where he has been. The Lord wants to know if Satan would have recognized or have seen Satan or Job, his servant. And Satan indeed has been keeping an eye on what is going on on earth. He mentions that he has been going to and fro on the earth. Ah. So Satan must have seen Job. He must have noticed him. You can't miss Job, the Lord says, He stands out among all the peoples of the earth because he is upright and fears God. There's none like him. What a compliment this is from the Lord. The Lord delights in Job. Job is his servant, a man who believes in God and walks in his ways. And Job is what we could call an Old Testament saint. He lives a holy life, the life of a believer who fears the Lord, one who is upright and blameless. But even though the Lord commends Job like this, Satan is unimpressed. It's no surprise that, he fe- that Job fears God, Satan says. Look at all that you've done for him. Who wouldn't fear God if they, had be- if they would end up being as rich and prosperous as Job? Satan says, Does, in verse 9, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land is job's worship and fear of god really a surprise satan doesn't think so in fact he challenges god and it continues in verse in verse 11 but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face according to satan job will only serve god as long as he receives God's blessing and take those blessings away and then gone will be Job's fear and his worship. It is as if Satan's saying to the Lord, don't rejoice in the worship of your saints when all you do is just bribe them with the blessings that you give them. You buy their love by protecting them from suffering, by putting up a hedge around their life. He attacks the way in which God deals with people how does God know that someone is really upright and really fears the Lord as long as he's never challenged on that point? And so we see that God praises Job for his love and for the worship he shows God, but Satan questions it, wondering if it is a real love and real fear for who God is. And the question then is, who is right? Who knows Job? And by challenging the Lord, Satan raises an important point. Or an important question. Is God worshipped or feared for who he is? Or is he only feared for the blessings that he gives his people? And one way to find out is to see how Job will actually react when all these blessings are taken away. If he he becomes angry with God and curses him, well then obviously Job only worships God for the blessings he gives him. But if Job continues to praise God for who he is, even when everything is taken away from him, then God is indeed greater than his... God himself is greater than the blessings he gives. And then knowing him and having this relationship with the Lord is even more precious and important to Job, and even greater and stronger than suffering. And then God really is Job's greatest treasure and his sweetest delight. And God knows that he is greater than suffering, that he is the greatest treasure of his saints. And so he allows Satan to make his point. But he sets a limit to Satan's power. Job cannot be touched, only everything that's around him. And so Job's wealth and his family, his children, these precious blessings from the Lord are allowed to be taken away. But Job himself is off limits for now. And this is enough of a test as it is. And here the scene in heaven ends. Satan is left to attack Job. And the text makes it clear that Satan is only able to, is only able to do as much and when God lets him to do such a thing. And the passage teaches us clearly that God is sovereign that he is in command of what happens on earth, that even when Satan wants to make a point, he still cannot do so without God's permission. Now we can read Satan's words today and just wonder or think about the same question. Why is the Lord feared and worshipped today? Is it for his gifts or for who he really is? Does God buy the love of his saints with his gifts and the blessings that he gives them? Now, perhaps you think this is an outrageous idea. God does never has to buy the love over the worship of his people. And I hope you indeed agree that this is outrageous. God does not have to do so. He is a God. He deserves all worship and praise for who he is. But if you look around in the world, and even in some parts of Christianity perhaps, you'll see this exact principle being promoted. The fact that you worship God in order to get these blessings. The idea that if you serve God, even invest in him, you w- even invest in him with your money or time, you will be paid back and will re- reap re- rewards in various forms. That if you worship him, you will get that job. Or you will be able to pay your bills at the end of the month. And so much more. And this is the kind of worship that is found in much of the world today. And this is a real sinful, human, selfish, what can I get out of it kind of worship. It's a kind of bartering with God. God gets our worship and praise, and we get his blessings. And we have to wonder if this is so pervasive in the world, and if it almost naturally comes to us, to our sinful human nature, We have to wonder, do we have these sinful human tendencies as well? And now as mentioned, we know that all those who believe in Jesus Christ do not have to fear the accusations of Satan. But could we just imagine for a moment that Satan was before the throne of God and that he was pointing out all the blessings that God has given his people, has given us. And he says to the Lord, take those away so that you may see what is really in the hearts of these people. And would Satan then have some ground to stand on if he would accuse you of worshipping the Lord for the blessings he gives you? Or worshipping God for your own benefit? Could he accuse you of worshipping God for his blessings? Or maybe, more in particular, worshipping because it seems just to be the recipe for a good and successful life. Or some worshipping for some kind of peace of mind. So that in church, you might ease your guilty conscience and then go out throughout the week sinning as before and not feel guilty about it. Or perhaps worshipping because it just really seems to be a good thing to have the status of a religious person. Could the accuser bring anything up like that? And perhaps we can make this question even sharper. We can test ourselves. Is there anything that God could take away from us that would certainly make us turn our backs on God? Now that's a real tough hypothetical question to answer. But just think about it for a moment. Are there any blessings that the Lord has given us? But if you would take it away, you would say, that's it. I won't worship or praise God any longer. Now, if we want to serve God and worship Him for who He is, and in un- all circumstances, and if we want- don't want to worship God for His blessings, but for who He is, then we have to wonder, how do we do this? How do we worship Him for who He is, even when He takes these blessings away? And perhaps you're thinking right now, you looked, you've, we've read the story of Job and you wonder, I would never be able to worship the Lord as Job did, or to be as steadfast in his faith as Job was. There are just too many things that God could take away that would make me turn my back on him. But before you draw this conclusion that that would certainly happen, that you would certainly uh, turn away from the Lord, we have to look outside of our own and perhaps sinful human reaction to these things. And we have to look at the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord that he accomplishes in all believers and in all his saints. The, the reason any believer can persevere, even amid suffering, suffering like Job, the only reason is that God works in them. That even when he takes what is dear to us away, the Lord still works in us by his Holy Spirit, renewing us. And this brings us to our second point that Job's reason for fearing God is not taken away. Now in the verses that follow, Satan systematically takes away all of Job's blessings. And the hedge that the Lord had put around Job and his possessions and all that he had is torn down. And first we read that the oxen and donkeys are taken away by raiders, and the animals are stolen and all the servants are killed except for one who then can come to Job and tell Job about all that has happened. And this is, of course, a huge blow. I mean, how could these raiders have taken everything? How could they have they taken all the oxen and all the donkeys so that there's nothing left for Job? Well, that's not enough. As the one servant finishes his sentence, another servant arrives. And the second servant is again a bearer of bad tidings. This time it is a fire of heaven that came down and consumed all the sheep and the servants except for one. And this is not just bad news, it's a bad sign. I mean, imagine how could so many sheep, 7,000 head, be hit by fire from heaven and die along with all of Job's servants. And yet it doesn't even stop here. Another servant runs up out of breath and shocked by what he has seen. And this time the servant had been with the camels when more raiders appeared, and groups of Chaldeans attacked them from three sides and took away the herd and killed again all the shepherds. Again, everything is taken away from Job. And then lastly, a fourth servant runs up. And by this time, almost everything has been taken from Job. Everything other in the list of his blessings that we found in verses 1 through 5 has been taken away. Well, everything except For his children. Of all the blessings that God had showered upon Job, there are still his children. And this time it was a strong wind that in a disastrous way hit the house on all four corners. So that it collapsed and killed all of the sons and daughters and the servants. And all but one servant again were killed in the house. And so there is is nothing left of everything that the Lord had given to Job. And can anyone just imagine what it would have been like to be Job? Just blow after blow, delivered at the same time. Just when in a manner of few moments, going from a wealthy, blessed father of ten children to a poor father who has to bury his children, all of them. And just in four devastating strikes, everything is taken away. And what is then left but tears and disbelief? For what has just happened Just enemies, raids, raiders, fire from heaven, and a mighty wind all came together at the same time, at the same moment, on that one particular day, to take away everything. And sometimes we might think that the world and everything is against us. Well, Job is perhaps the one person in history that could actually say that. Everything went wrong and everything got as bad as it could get. There's just nothing left for Job. And here's a man who has lost everything. And it's painful. It hurts. He mourns. He tears his clothes. He shaves his head and falls to the ground. And this is, of course, the moment of truth. Who is right? Did Satan know what he was talking about when he made his challenge? Will Job become angry? Will he yell out to heaven? shake his fist at the Lord and curse him to his face? Or will Job continue to be upright, fearing the Lord, praising him, being blameless and fearing the Lord, turning away from evil? Was God right to commend Job and to praise him before Satan? And the question is, who is right? God or Satan? Who knows what Job better? And at this moment, God and Satan both eagerly await the words from Job's mouth. What is he going to do? Will he curse God? And no. Job's response is perhaps the most striking part of this whole chapter. He has just been stripped of all that is dear to him, yet he has his life. And what does he do? He bows down to worship the Lord of heaven and earth. All that has happened to him from birth unto now has been the work of the Lord. And so also this day. A day of disaster and of calamity is a day of the Lord. He simply confesses this with the words, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is not a curse. This is a confession a praise to God. It is a confession of God's sovereign power. A confession spoken with tears, but a confession nonetheless. Instead of cursing God to his face, Job bows down and blesses the name of the Lord. We can't imagine a greater contrast. We can just wonder, how could Job praise the Lord in such a trial? Now if we look at the words of Job, we find that his confession focuses on two things. First, who Job is and second who the lord is and job continues or begins by considering who he is that he's a man a sinner weak and undeserving he came into this world possessing nothing and then he knows that he will eventually leave returning to dust in the same way it does not matter how much you work in this life or how much money you save up or all the blessings that the lord gives you you cannot take any of your any of it Into the grave. You'll be left with your person. And that is it. Is there then anything that we can claim in this world that is truly ours? Is there anything that we can claim and say that's what we have right to? Or is everything that we have have in this life given to us? And is it all out of our hands? And yes, Job simply confesses. All of it has been given to us. It is not our own. And it has been given to us by a sovereign God. He is in control of our lives. He gives us life. He gives us breath, food, parents, houses, riches, and all these blessings. And so much more. And all of these things were received from our very first breaths. Who is Job then to turn to this good and gracious God? To turn to him in anger and with curses when God takes from him that which wasn't his to begin with. No, God deserves to be praised in all circumstances, even for what he does in his mighty wisdom. He's God, and we're human. He is the overflowing fountain of all good. We are sinners, weak and poor, who will pass away in weakness and owning nothing. And this is Job's comfort. He knows the Lord as his sovereign God. More he does not need to know. As Asaph confesses in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And in these words of Job, we see that it's not about receiving God's blessing. It's about knowing the Lord. The Lord is his portion. For he is the Lord Almighty, the one who gives and the one who takes away. What can we do but worship him for who he is and for what he has done? Job's words are such words of faith. And the Lord was right. Job does love God even when he takes away all of his possessions. Job's love is not bought by God's many blessings. But Job has come to understand that God is worthy of praise for who he is. His love is real and revolves around who God is, and nothing can change that. And the sincerity and the steadfastness of Job's faith is striking. It has such deep roots that it cannot even be shaken by this, by such a test, by all these disasters that happen around him. And you might wonder, would I ever be capable of being like Job and of answering like Job in such a trial. Or is Job really just truly one of a kind? A standard we will never reach? And yes, it's true. Job's life in his confessions shows us that he had great faith. And he was commended by the Lord. We read it. He's commended a couple of times as a man who's upright and blameless. But at the same time, the way in which God praises Job, calling him blameless, upright, fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. All of these attributes, all of these uh, descriptions are also applied to Christians in the New Testament. All believers are to be upright, blameless, and fearing God. Now the problem is, of course, is that when we look to our own lives, we realize that we aren't this from ourselves. We are not blameless, and we do not fear God or love him as we should. And when we love God, we often fall short. And when we try to live blamelessly, keeping God's law, we often stumble. We ourselves, of ourselves, we are far from blameless or upright or holy. And at the same time, we have to realize that this is the same thing for Job. Nothing is less true for Job himself. He is a sinner saved by grace, like any one of us. He is a sinner made holy, made blameless, by the Holy Spirit, just as we are. He perseveres and he confesses and praises the Lord because God continues to work in him. And so before we go on to say that Job was completely unique and one of a kind, let us not forget that it is the Lord who works such steadfast faith in his saints. It is the Lord who loved us and works in us by his Holy Spirit so that we have faith, and so that we might rightly know God and even rightly love him for who he is. And we see the Holy Spirit at work in the life of Job so that he was indeed upright, blameless, and held on to his faith. That he held on and feared the Lord, even though everything was taken away from him. And we may know that the Lord Jesus Christ has poured out this very same Spirit on his church to work faith in believers, to transform them so that they may begin to love the Lord rightly. He gathers, Christ gathers and protects his church by his word and his spirit. With this purpose, as Colossians 1 verse 22 says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, and that is Jesus Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ works in his church so that he may present all believers holy and blameless and above reproach before the Lord. This is not our own doing. And so perhaps we might read Job 1, and we might think that having a faith like Job is just impossible or not something that we will never attain to. And perhaps you wonder if you could ever truly love God for who he is. Because your love and your worship, when you come to think about it, always has such mixed motives. And yes, if we continue to focus on our weak faith, on our sinful humanity, we might be correct. We would never be able to be blameless or able to love God just solely for who he is. But in this scripture passage, in the story of Job, God calls us to look at how powerful he can work by his Holy Spirit in the, work, in the lives of his saints. And so believe in Jesus Christ, who poured out the Holy Spirit into our hearts, and be encouraged that he will keep, uh, keep us, that he will make us to hold on to our faith in all circumstances. That the Spirit who works faith, or that this Spirit works our faith, and he makes us holy, and he will not leave us alone when we need him the most. He will continue to work in us that we may fear God for who he is and worship him with a pure heart. And so, is God enough? Or does God buy our love with his gifts? Well, if we look at Job 1, the first chapter of Job, and Job's response. There should be no doubt.
1: God is God and
0: worthy of praise when he gives and when he takes away. He's God. All-powerful, sovereign, everything happens according to his will. And he is good. And so to know him and praise him as our God is our comfort, even when he takes away what is dear to us. And even though fearing God in such circumstances might seem impossible, we know that the Holy Spirit, ever sanctifying us, ever working in us, will continue to hold on to us and work in us. He will continue to work in believers so that we might more and more love and worship God for who he is. More and more love him with pure motives and with a right heart. He is God working in us to eventually present us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That is our comfort and hope in all circumstances. Amen. Let us now also continue to sing from Psalm 73.